Hi, I'm James Reine. Welcome to the Coal Capital Podcast, a show about startups and technology with a focus on Japan and Asia broadly. Hi, this is Ken. So today's guest is Han Kim, Managing Director and Co-Founder uh, of Autos Ventures. Autos Ventures was founded in 1996 with a $30 million US fund and now manages more than $10 billion US dollars. Notable investments include Coupon, Uber Brothers, Roblox, and Toss. Coupon, a Korean e-commerce startup, was valued at over 100 billion US dollars at IPO last year, a phenomenal and symbolic success from Korea. We are gonna ask Han what it was like to invest in Coupon more than 10 years ago and the evolution of the Korean startup ecosystem. There's lots of similarities between Korean and Japanese startup ecosystems and societies. So we believe we can learn a lot from the stories Han told us in this interview. Now, as Ken said, the Japan ecosystem and the Korean ecosystem have so many similarities. And over the years, I've been looking in awe and also frustration of the fact that Japan uh, was lagging historically uh, from Korea. Now things are picking up, but I still think that there's a lot of things that we can learn from the ecosystem there. So I hope our uh, founders in Japan in particular really enjoy this episode. Han, welcome to the Coral Capital Podcast. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. So I did a lot of research and there's a few YouTube videos out there and podcasts out there about the Alto story. So I'm going to link to those in the notes. But one thing that hasn't been talked about by you guys is the evolution of the Korea startup ecosystem. And, you know, personally, I think that a lot of the founders in Japan would be curious about that story just because it's a neighboring country. It's a smaller economy than Japan, and yet it's able to birth quite big outcomes. And... Korea startup ecosystems had a hell of a run, right? You had Kupang, you had Wuba Brothers, Crafton, Toss. Uh, you know, I guess that's not exited yet, but you know, it looks like it's going to be a, a really promising company. And my question is, did you think that Korea was going to be as big of a startup ecosystem as as it has become when you first you know started out investing in Korea? No, you know, when we first started out, uh, that was when we made our first investment was back in two thousand and. I believe we invested in a similar company to YouTube. It was called Pandora TV. And the, when we looked at the uh, Korean ecosystem, it's much like Japan. You know, the companies, they grow to profitability. They don't use up a lot of invested capital to turn themselves cash positive. It's usually because there isn't that much investment capital available. They just figure out a way to turn profitable and, and they grow slowly over time. And then you start making a few million dollars of profit. Then you go public on a small exchange. And, you know, it's, it's uh, anywhere between 50 to 100 million plus type of a company and everyone does well. So we looked at Korean opportunities initially with that in mind. And, and so we invested like one or two companies a year. And over time, I think by 2010, 11 or so, we started to see changes in Korea. And there were a bunch of things. You know, one, one enlightening thing for us was when Coupang hit, a billion uh, in GMV, we looked at how much time it took for Coupang to hit a billion dollars in GMV. And we were like, wow, that was very quick. And, and it 
took them less amount of time than Amazon. So we said, how can that be if Korea is a smaller country? We thought it was a very lethargic market. And that's when I think the light bulb went on for us. Then we started to look at Korea a little bit more systematically. And we realized the you know, whole thing, I think we talked about it various different places in that the domestic market in Korea is actually much bigger than we thought. As you start breaking it into various urban cities, top 10 cities in Korea actually had bigger population numbers than top 10 cities in the US. And, and then we're like, hey, once you win in top 10 cities, you start looking at international opportunities, et cetera, but the initial core is actually really big. And, and so we started to take Korea much more seriously. And, and then we looked at a whole bunch of other reasons why Korea was doing much better, which was, you know, Korea's, I think over 95% of Koreans were Koreans. So it's much easier to market into. So the, your acquisition cost of a customer was much lower. And, and because of the density of those urban cities, it, it brings down the cost even more, which is, I think, very similar to kind of how Japan is shaped up. And so when we looked at it, we're like, this is a big opportunity. I think no one really believes in it, realizes it. So we need to go after this opportunity. And around that time, I think we saw every, what everyone was going through, which was everything was changing from desktop into mobile. So you know, it's a big opportunity. You know, if you're spending one hour a day with a certain service, now you're going to spend much more time through your mobile and much more frequently. So I think intellectually, we thought, hey, you know, all the new services that's going to be born from mobile, it should be much bigger than what's there in, on desktop. So I think intellectually, we were thinking, you know, there's some big companies that's going to come up, but I don't think we emotionally or psychologically realized it was going to be this big. And I think now everyone believes it because they see things, they feel things. Um, so it's much easier topic. Probably Japan is on its way there. So you brought up a really good point that I like to double click on. So yeah. I mean, Japan has so many similarities in the sense that, you know, just in Tokyo, you have one third to one fourth of the, the population concentrated here, right? It's in greater Tokyo area. And as you said, they watch similar content. They have similar lifestyles. They commute to the same sort of places. And so you're marketing to an addressable market of like 30, 40 million people and even wider, wider Japan, in a lot of cases, because it's a very monocultural uh, society in the same vein, it's in some ways, maybe easier than markets like the US where you have actually a lot of fragmentation, right? And in Tokyo, the Hollywood of Japan is Tokyo. The New York of Japan is Tokyo. The Silicon Valley of Japan is Tokyo. And everything's concentrated here. So I imagine Korea maybe has a lot of similarities there. Very similar. Yeah. The number of channels broadcasters, uh, it's quite limited in Japan. So everybody watches basically the same content. So, but still the time has changed quite a bit at the time you started out. So I'm going to ask you what kind of reaction 
you got from potential investors like LPs or maybe companies when you first raised your capital? Because, you know, people didn't see the opportunity as you saw it. Oh, you know, some people thought I was absolutely nuts. And, <laughs> and my explanations were basically we started to invest in Korean companies from our, you know, we had one single fund that we used to invest out of. We had a percentage limitations and when we started to see opportunities, we were like, my God, this is really big. We need to raise a separate fund focused on Korea. And it, we explained to our own LP, some of whom participated in our Korea fund. And we also went out to a bunch of other uh, new investors uh, to raise the first Korea fund. But that was after we made a bunch of investments into Korean companies already. So we were able to talk about why we think it's a, a big opportunity, bigger opportunity going forward. And, and my sort of story was that hey, in Korea, unlike Japan, I think one thing, uh, Korea, I, I, it's an unfortunate event, but it benefited entrepreneurialism in Korea, which is Korea had a huge shock to the system. This is back in 1998, 99. The IMF, we call it the IMF crisis, but it was a financial crisis which triggered a lot of debt recalls and, and Korea almost went out of business. So the Korean one got very weak uh, and a lot of the companies had to pare back and for the first time in Korean history, conglomerates, which basically have a social contract to hire people for lifetime. I think it's much similar to uh, Japan. And for the first time in their lives, they got fired. They were let go. And all of a sudden, the, grad, the best and the smartest graduating classes from the best colleges can get hired into these conglomerates. It just happened very suddenly. And what did they do? You know, they had nothing else to do. So people, smart people that got fired, they started their own companies without knowing what they were going to do. And that was the first generation of Korean internet companies like the Naver, the game companies like NCSofts, Nexon. They were all built from that era. And the other one was Daum, which was the number two portal. And these companies play very important roles in that the founding members, they basically started to support younger people starting around 2010, 2011, as these young executives working in those internet companies were basically seeing the transition from desktop to mobile and they would bring up projects to their seniors and seniors said, ah, you know, we're making so much money here. Why are you, you know, trying to do this? And they get frustrated and they wanted to leave and they get funding from the entrepreneurs that made money in the first go round. So Korea had that first generation of entrepreneurs who are successful that actually started to back these new set of entrepreneurs. And Kakao was one of the prime examples of that. And so a lot of companies were growing and we saw that and we felt it. So we went to the LP community and said, hey, all these great companies are happening. I think we need to be a part of it. 
And they looked at me. Some have asked me, hey, Han, you know, I'm glad. Sounds like an interesting story. But what about that missile North Korea just fired? You know, like, I didn't even know there was a missile that got fired, you know, because nobody in Korea cares about the missile. But anyway, so a lot of it was, it's like, look, I just feel like it's a lot of risk to invest in a single country. So they had fear. And Korea was weird in that it was not one of those markets various LPs had to invest in. Like China was, India was. Korea is not a developing market like Indonesia or Southeast Asia. So it's it's a no-go. I think Japan is probably in a similar boat. So it's a weird thing. They knew the buyouts were happening, but it Hey, but isn't Korea dominated by conglomerates, which is a similar question I imagine Japan would get. The Samsungs, LGs, SK telecoms, they're very well known, but you know, they just didn't know whether or not entrepreneurialism existed. And so, you know, that's why I talk about that first generation of entrepreneurs after the financial crisis, and, and there are a bunch of people that have grown up in that system. And I think if we didn't get to know those people, I don't think we would have been brave enough to say, hey, we want to start a fund. But I think we were, you know, fairly confident because of long years of investing in Korea that some of these things will actually turn out to be some great opportunities and and we wanted to back it. And we thought we could help them become much bigger companies. But it took a long time. You know, most LPs, they listen. We had to go back multiple times and it just took a while to uh, get them aboard. So when you launched your Korea-specific fund, did you already have an investment in Coupang at that point? Yes, yes. You did? Okay, so at least you had that to point to, I assume. That was giving some comfort. Like there's actually a, a huge outcome in the works here. Yeah, but I, I don't know if if it was an obvious success at the time because it was growing very rapidly. But I mean, there were like a couple of other companies like Timon, as well as some existing conglomerates like Lotte and SSG. And they thought when the conglomerates wake up, Coupon will be gone. There was a lot of that sentiment. And I'm like, are you kidding me? But, you know, it is a real sentiment, uh, you know, that was very prevalent at that time. And they were like, look how much money they're losing every day. There's no way they're, you know, they're going to run out of money. It wasn't something we could point to and say, it's a huge company. All we could say was, hey, it could be a huge company in the making. We feel very good about it. But, you know, whether or not people really believed us, I think it was a tough sell. So I'm just trying to distill some learnings here for the Japan market. So in 2021, Mm -hmm. the numbers are not completely out yet, but uh, it'll probably be something like seven to 8 billion invested in Japanese startups. That's pretty good, but you know, it's, it's been a long time coming so that we've been selling Japan for a long time. And finally there's more capital Mm -hmm. here, but Korea, one fourth of the economy just right next door seems to have attracted a lot of capital relative to, to GDP. And I'm just wondering, what were the secrets? You know, I, you were mentioning that one of them was just out of necessity. 
that lifelong employment was no longer guaranteed. And this birthed a sort of renaissance of entrepreneurial talent and those guys invested back into the ecosystem. But is there anything else that might have been a key point or maybe a catalyst for the ecosystem to expand as it has? I think you have to give a lot of credit to the entrepreneurs, right? So I would go back to it and say, you know, I mentioned Cacao. Uh, you know, we're, we weren't investors in Cacao, but I've watched Brian, who's the founder of Cacao. Brian was one of the main guys at Naver. He came out to build the uh, Naver's game business out in the U.S. and didn't quite do it. And so he actually quit Naver. And there were some key developers that he was very close to. And they came out, wanted to do something and he just backed them. I think he put in like 20 to 25 million of his own money wow. into a lab and said, you guys built some kind of a mobile service. Is everything's going to go to mobile? And one of the items that came up was Cacao Talk. And when he saw that, he's like, this is the thing I think we're going to concentrate on. And he went back to Korea to make sure the team worked on it. And they launched that service. And, you know, it took a little while to get going. And once it got going, you know, we just knew everything, you know, was going to go, you know, very quickly up to the right. Even then, I think a lot of people had doubts because, you know, people are like, oh, it's a free service. Whenever the phone companies wake up, when they make the SMS free, they're going to die away and Phone companies were like, hey, we, we have services that's way better than Cacao Talk. These guys don't know how to scale. You know, it's the same thing you hear from, you know, very big companies, right? And Cacao Talk just kept on growing right past them. Then their second argument was, it's a free service. They're never going to make money. And then they leveraged their traffic to make money, which was something even Tencent had a tough time doing and cacao showed actually tencent how to monetize from the traffic and what that did was it just encouraged a lot of other people that hey maybe i could do something similar and and that actually got people going and then you know coupon when it went public that just put people like hey if he could do it God, I should be able to do it. You know, and I think that kind of mentality just took over when Ua Brothers exited for multi-billions. I think he didn't graduate from the best schools in Korea, didn't have the elite whatever program or track career. His first business failed, but he was one of those extraordinary founders who just, just executed from day one and built that business into a very, very large business. And when that happened, I think most people were like, hey, I went to a better school than he did, and I had much better career than he did. And you know what? If he's able to do it, I should be able to do it. And there's a lot of people, and that kind of attitude, it's not a condescending attitude per se, but it's kind of like, why can't I be able to do that? And I think that kind of competition is good. So a lot of people jumped on it. And I think the other catalyst is Korean government did 
provide lots of funding or they encourage lots of funding. And they actually, their SMB basically dedicated a bunch of that money into investments into local venture funds in Korea. And I think that got the system going. And when some companies exited for a huge amount, I think that's when the foreign capital, you know, other than us, got interested. So you see a lot of large venture funds who are typically investing in late stages, investing big dollars into late stage Korean companies now. I was just curious about the general mindset of would-be entrepreneurs who might be working for big corporations. They may have seen some you know, guys succeeding, making great business and making money. And why not me? That's probably was the catalyst for entrepreneurs to come out and do something great. But still, there must have been downside. And unless they know there's something, even if they fail after starting a business, uh, so what about the like safety net? You know, in Japan, there seems to be emerging startup economy or ecosystem where even if you fail, you know, somebody's going to hire you because you, you're competent to raise capital. That's good enough. But probably Korea, like years ago, must have been different. You know, quitting big company is scary. And if we share uh, mm-hmm. culture in common, we are known to be risk averse to some extent. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious about the mindset of entrepreneurs? Yeah, I think maybe 10, 15 years ago, you know, Koreans had a very similar mindset in that typically, I think it had to do with the system. A lot of the startup founders, they, they took almost no salary in Korea. The very typical startup was they took very little salary. They, you know, when the company doesn't perform as well, they would actually mortgage their house borrow money, put into the company. So they put everything in their life into the company. So when the company doesn't go well or company fails, everything, you know, they're now, they owe money to their friends. You know, their wives are probably ready to kill them, you know, because they would lose their house. So, so I think failure, man, you've just like ruined your life the livelihood of not yourselves, but your entire family. So that was sort of, I think, the typical failure in Korea as a startup. So it was a very risky proposition. And so one of the things we had to come in and and help to educate was, hey, when you fail, you should just fail, but you shouldn't owe anything to anybody. You know, everyone is a big boy. You know, we take risks. If it doesn't do well, we should all walk away, shake hands, and hopefully you could come back and want to do something again. And hopefully we want to back you. And it's not all like that in Korea, but it's a lot more like that now than before. And I think that's why people were a lot more apprehensive about starting companies and failing back then. But now I think people, it's a little easier. It's still tough for a lot of entrepreneurs because, you know, there is that subtle pressure from the VCs. What do you mean you want to quit? What do you mean you want to fold the company? (laughs) You know, don't you have a little money left in the company? Or like, no, because you have to pay out people so that employees 
you know, they have some money to start looking for jobs and whatnot. In the U.S., the law is a little bit more strict in terms of when you close down the company, you shouldn't have liabilities. Liabilities are shared by not just the founders, but also the investors that's on the board as well. But in Korea, it's, it, the founders do take on all of that responsibility. Mm. So investors, I think, put that pressure. And I don't know if I did or not. So we try very hard not to do that. So in Japan, it used to be the case that actually venture capital term sheets would also include a clause that the founders were basically on the hook for the money. So Oh, yeah. Korea had that same thing. Yeah, But now it's illegal in Korea. It's that... Oh, it's illegal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not, I don't think it's illegal in Japan, but you just never see it anymore. So yeah. that's a good artifact of the past. Yeah. So to expand on the question that Ken had about founders and risk aversion, what about employees, right? So obviously these big businesses are not built alone, right? It's not just as founders, but you have early employees that take a risk, uh, arguably even more of a risk because they're not as incentivized uh, in terms of equity. Has that changed in Korea where it's, you know, startups are becoming kind of cool rather than going the traditional path and lifelong employment? Yeah, it's on its way there. It's not like in, in Silicon Valley, right? I think a lot of people are looking at startups as a main career opportunity now. But having said that, I always look at what moms say. <laughs> when we talk about moms, it's kind of like, where does my daughter and my son work at. They like to be able to tell their friends that my son or daughter works at a company that other people know. They still don't like to say my son or daughter works at a startup because then it's kind of maybe they didn't do as well, right? That's why you joined the startup. That's still the bit of a mindset in Korea. And so when they go out into a marriage market. I, I shouldn't, I don't know if it's an appropriate thing to say. It's not like if your son works for Samsung versus somebody that works for Startup A, the Samsung son, I think, would get higher points in terms of the rank order, right? Yeah. And I think it's, it's changing very rapidly. It's still not there. And so I, I think I love the trend. Maybe in three, four years from now, it'll be completely reversed, but it hasn't been, right? So we still have ways to go in Korea. This is a little bit technical question, but what about stock options? Do employees at startups get shares a little bit, stock option when they go public and how much typically they make as an employee? So early employees typically all get stock options. Now, I think when we started investing in Korea, not everyone got stock options. Only the very few got stock options. And the explanation to us, it was hard for us to understand. We're like, why shouldn't every employee get stock options? And they would say, well, most employees don't value stock options. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I understand that because most stock options were worthless. That's why no one valued it. There, were, there weren't that many success stories of people who had stock options. You know, basically, when you're giving stock options, people are like, hey, you know, just pay me in cash because 
I know you're just giving me something that's worthless. And that's how it was back then. But now I think people realize, you know, there are, there are some people in Korea now, they made millions of dollars in stock options, right? So now everyone's like, hey, I want some of that. And so everyone's demanding it. And so when you're trying to hire someone, people are like, hey, you know, is stock options part of the package or not? So people are getting more sophisticated about asking for, and some companies are definitely using it as a, a weapon to get the best people, which I think is great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's similar to actually what's happened in Japan, where it used to be that, as you said, stock options, what are those? <laughs> and I just want cash. And now, I think, I think the key thing was that there weren't role models. And so we talked about role models in the sense of like entrepreneurs seeing success stories, right? And that's inspiring them to, to try things. And I think one of the turning points in Japan was Mercari, you know, that IPO, because it was just, it was just so fast. It was like five, six years to like, you know, unicorn exit IPO. And they did issue stock options, right? And there were people that became millionaires out of that IPO. And the issue before was that you just didn't really have friends or people in the industry that became millionaires. It was always concentrated in the management and the VCs. And so because you didn't have any role models like that, it didn't seem like it was attainable. That's changed a lot. So it's just interesting to see the, the parallels there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now some of the companies, like everybody gets stock options, but it's still not as prevalent as in Silicon Valley companies. Okay. And then, so switching gears a little bit, you guys have made investments in cash and soda. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 And I was just wondering how did these investments come about? Was it just sort of opportunistic or, you know, are you starting to, to look at Japan as a market more seriously these days? We always had interest in Japan. I think when I started visiting Japan a little bit more often about this is like pre COVID days. So feels like ages ago, you know, about three, four years ago, I used to go talk to various people and everybody said, hey, Japan's a small market and Japan, Japanese entrepreneurs, I don't know if they're going to, they have what it takes to make it into a global market. So we'd rather go invest in Southeast Asia. And I'm like, well, it's like deja vu for Korea, right? So I'm right. like, no, that can't be. I mean, what do you mean it's a small market? We think Korea is big. Japan's like much bigger market. So I don't know why you, you leave here and go after Southeast Asian market. I mean, it's, it's a very attractive market, but you know, I'm like, Japan's a very attractive market. I wish I could speak Japanese. I would do this all day long. And so we were like, hey, if a lot of investors that were in Japan if they want to ignore Japan, I'm like, maybe, you know, there could be a lot of interesting opportunities for us to invest in. And so we started to meet Japanese companies and whatnot. And one of the companies, our good friends from Goodwater introduced, you know, they had made a small investment in a fintech company called Cash. And they were like, hey, you should go meet Shin whenever you're in Tokyo. And Luckily, Shin spoke English, so I was able to connect with him and spend some time in person. He was embarked on something that was very interesting. We were able to understand what he was doing because of our work in TOS, 
And we knew it was going to be a long way, but it's one of these revolution that had to take place in whether it's by cash or by somebody. And so we're like, hey, we'd love to be a part of the investment. So, so we ended up backing cash. That's how cash investment came about. And we were hoping to spend a lot more time with him, but, you know, the pandemic happened and I, you know, I can't enter the country since the pandemic. So it hasn't been as easy to do more in Japan. And then so the opportunity came along more because of our investment in cream. And, and as you know, cream is a, it, it does basically the same thing in Korea. And it's, you know, neighbor owns a good chunk of cream and, and through, you know, their relationship with line, that's how they wanted to invest into soda. And we had common investors between us and SoftBank and neighbor. So it was a natural extension into an investment in soda. So I haven't met the uh, soda team in person. So so soda investment happened all via Zoom. I, I can't wait to you know meet them in person and start spending time with them. It's quite interesting that you said that Shin from Cash spoke English, so you could connect with him, spend some time. Yeah, yeah. So I'd like to ask, how important is it for founders to speak English? We think it's very advantageous to be able to speak some English as a founder when raising capital from overseas investors. So, I mean, although we're overseas investors, we speak Korean. And if you notice some of the, um, the large financings that happen for Korean companies, the early ones, there's always a Korean speaking person in those organizations. And that helped to bring the rest of the members together. So it helped all the, like, whether it's BlackRock, whether it's SoftBank corporate, the only person that didn't have was Sequoia, but they, they had enough investors that knew them that could talk to them in English. They were already investors. Sorry, just want to be clear. So the firms that invested in Korean companies, almost all of them had a Korean speaking counterpart. Is that yeah, right? So, yeah. So if you yeah. look at like a Hill House, DST, these are all late stage investors. BlackRock at that time, they all had Korean speaking person on their team. Some of them were partners that drove investments. Some of them were analysts that helped the investments. So it really helped to have that ecosystem. So Korean founders, they sometimes they spoke very good English. Sometimes they don't, but it, it all gets heard. So I think being able to communicate was very important. But now there's enough proof points, enough contact points for a lot of people where it's not as necessary. So for us in Japan, I think if we spoke Japanese, it would be much easier because we think there's a lot of great founders who probably don't speak English. And we also know that there's a huge difference between speaking English versus speaking in your native language. The, how you come across, how you think, how you solve problems 
without being able to understand the native language, it's it's really hard to see that through, right? And and that's a huge disadvantage being a foreign investor who don't speak Japanese. And and that's why I think for our Japanese companies, unless it's a business that we really understand or if it's a business where we can look at metrics and be able to ask questions based on metrics, less on sort of a theory, it would be really tough for us to do incredibly early stage investments, falling in love with the founder because of his or her vision about certain things. So just out of curiosity, the founding teams in Korea that have had the most fundraising success did they tend to have an English speaker on the team? They usually do. Initially, we would help quite a bit. I think one of the first companies that got a big investment from a overseas late stage invest- investor is Ua Brothers. So mm-hmm. Ua Brothers got the first investment from uh, Goldman's PIA group. But Goldman's PIA group, they had three Korean on the team in their Hong Kong office, one of whom is a partner with Altos today. So although it's a foreign group, which had to do all their due diligence reports in English, they were able to communicate with the management team in Korean. So that really helped. You already made some comparison between Southeast Asia and Japan, mm-hmm. but you've done a couple of investments in Indonesia and Vietnam. How do you think the Asian landscape will play out and the Japan are going to be an attractive market for investors, do you think? I think so. We're mostly still focused on Korea. I think we're fairly agnostic, right? We think probably other than Korea, we think Japan probably has the next biggest set of opportunities. One of the reasons why we can't access those opportunities is because of our language deficiency. It just takes a while to understand certain things because when people talk about certain trends in Korea, we just innately know. We don't have to question. We just know. Whereas as a foreign investor looking at something for the first time, you're like, oh, really? You have to do a whole set of due diligence to feel comfortable, right? Our first investment was 2006. We made our second one in 2007. And then I don't know if we invested anything in, oh, then we made two investments in 08, didn't do anything in 09. Then we made one or two more. And then like starting 2013, we started investing a lot more. So we just don't know how the future will unfold. You know, we tend to do one or two at a time to see how comfortable we feel about the market. And as we get to know the market, and if we start seeing a lot of opportunities, then we we start backing even more. But I just, I think it's more of a hypothesis. I think there's a lot of great entrepreneurs in Japan, which I think is close to a fact. And we just haven't seen or met enough to start feeling comfortable. Like we, we should meet a bunch of entrepreneurs and we need to come back to the partnerships and say, you know what? We missed that one. 
you know, we didn't believe it, but we totally missed it. We need to have a bunch of those before we start jumping in a little bit more frequently. Every fund does that before they start going a little bit more aggressively, which I think is a perfect normal way of doing business. So on that note, when it comes to startups in Japan, what would be the ideal investment opportunity in terms of the stage, check size, founder characteristics, uh, anything? I don't know. I don't know if I could predict. It's, we, we have to connect with the founder at some point. If I were to guess, maybe a business we're a little bit more familiar with, and then we'll probably take a little bit of position and then get to know the founder really well so that we could take even bigger position in the company. Okay. Uh, so you guys are not thematic investors, from what I understand, much more, I think, founder focused and maybe business focused. You know, you mentioned that you would probably be making investments in companies or industries that you're a little bit more familiar with in terms of business model. Are there any areas in particular that you think might have some opportunity in Japan? We typically love to be surprised. Give you an example. One of the companies we invested in Korea recently is in the it's a HR software company and you know basically focused on hiring the whole process of hiring and in the US when you look at hiring software companies it's very not good right it, there hasn't been big opportunities there and my partners in the US are like huh that's exactly not the most fun sector where we think the big companies are going to come out of it's not the most innovative sector and so that was my first reaction. And then after spending some time, we realized in Korea, hiring process has changed in recent years. So typically in Korea, all the companies, they hired once a year, right? Every graduates, they have once a year, you get hired in and that class just continues to go. So all the whatever software there was in Korea, it was geared towards that one big hire once a year and you track those candidates through. That was sort of the main thing. But now all the companies are starting to hire and it's because of the startups just eating everybody's lunch. Everybody's hiring every day. And you are battling to hire the best people for your company every day. And so for that, you need a completely different set of software. And whereas in the U.S., you are already doing that. But in Korea, for the first time now, the entire environment changed. And for that environment, they needed a complete new software for that market. Right. So now... All of a sudden, in a boring sector, there's a huge opportunity. And so we decided to back up very, very early stage opportunities. I'm sure in Japan, there is something unique that sometimes happens within a market. Maybe it's an industry that no one cares about. Or from a U.S. perspective, it's kind of like, why would you do something? But something unique could change in Japan. And I think that would actually spring a good startup to spot it and address those problems. And we love those kind of companies. When a founder figures out an elegant solution, 
to a problem where it's hard for the outside to understand it. But like when you're in it, it's kind of like, oh, wow, that's right. You know, why isn't somebody doing this? So those are the ones that we, we, we love to dig in and see if we could invest in. It's really funny that you mentioned that because I am literally looking at a company with basically that story right now. So <laughs> some, some good hints there. Yeah. <laughs> I might have to uh, follow up on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. So I think we'll wrap it up here in a few minutes. I think, Ken, you had one more question, right? So what's one piece of advice you think more entrepreneurs in Japan need to hear from your point of view? It's the same advice I typically give to the uh, Korean entrepreneurs as well. Just as in Korea, I would just tell the Japanese entrepreneurs to be more confident, be more proud of yourself, because you have to tell yourself, I'm good every day, because I think the educational system in Korea, and I'm assuming in Japan, you constantly get told to have humility right? And so you're always like thinking, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. And when you go out, especially outside the country into other worlds, you don't feel as comfortable because you don't think you're as good. But I I think entrepreneurs are really, really good, right? If you are good kicking butt in Japan, that means you could go out and kick butt in other places. And you just have to have that confidence. There are a lot of other entrepreneurs from other countries that I'm like, well, I don't don't know why you were that confident. But when I see some entrepreneurs in Korea and Japan, sometimes I'm like, God, you know, you you should just go out there and tell your story and and act confidently and be confident, right? And, And sometimes that's that's missing from a lot of the entrepreneurs and i think that's a piece that you have to have wow i can totally relate yeah, sometimes totally. we can be too humble <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you well han this has been really really great so thanks so much for setting aside the time thank you thank you very much